Paleo Cinema 258. My name's Terry Frost, and this time around I'm doing one thing that's Hitchcock and one thing that's not. The thing that is Hitchcock is his second last feature film, Frenzy, from 1972, starring Barry Foster and John Finch. Then we go back 10 years for Agnes Varda's wonderful movie, which I haven't seen before, Cleo from 5 to 7, which I'm going to recommend. So we've got a little bit of murder and strangulation and a little bit of internalised angst. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way and we get the show started. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of old movie appreciations. There's only a couple of rules here. The first one is the movie has to be at least 20 years old and that's a rule I break occasionally. And the second rule is I have to find some interesting things to say about it. Uh, feedback's very important to the podcast, so you can offer it a couple of ways. You can offer some at feedbackpaleo at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. And also, no, you can send me an owl if you went to Hogwarts. You can even support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as $1 US per month. Just be aware with the podcast, I may swear occasionally, so you might not want to let your kids hear it if you don't want them to pick up filthy words with Australian pronunciation. Okay, how is everybody doing? I've started out this podcast really badly. First off, I spilled a glass of whiskey on the desk, which made the whole man cave smell like Scotland instead of the usual combination of sweat, farts and old books. But don't worry, I've cleaned up and I've got another glass now and it's all okay. And eventually the smell will fade with a bit of luck by you know, March or April next year. The other thing is I started recording the audio for this. Wonderful stuff, dulcet tones, really lovely thoughts. And then I played it back and it sounded like I had acromegaly. Really deep and slow voice. I couldn't do anything to fix it. I tried all the presets and everything on the recording software. And it still came out with me sounding a little bit like a drunk Ted Cassidy. So I've had to start the whole bloody thing again. Um, now, the weather report. I always give a weather report. Weather report is it's really shitty here. It's cold, wet and windy. There's snow on the hills. Uh, the wind chill is pretty significant. And we're just not suited to this kind of stuff. The storm got so bad, it blew the end off Frankston Pier in Port Phillip Bay. The other end of Port Phillip Bay is only about five kilometres from my place. So, yeah, we had to go outside and do some life stuff today. And, yeah, it was pretty shitty. Had the hoodie on, had the thermal beanie on. Yeah, um, the sooner I get some nice warm weather around me, the much happier I'll be. I want the weather to be much more like this. So if somebody could arrange that, that'd be really great. Um, The other downside of this week is we still haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because it isn't being released until next week here in Australia. When I'm going to go down and see it at the Astor with Ben Buckingham and Morris Brzezinski, friends of the podcast. So we're going to go down there on a Saturday night, have a pizza and enjoy the Tarantino wonderfulness of it. I've been dodging spoilers online for the last week and a half. And it's getting a little old, to be honest with you. I suppose that's what happens when Disney runs pretty much almost everything and that they think that everybody wants to see a live-action remake of an animated movie that was ripped off from Osama Tezuka's Kimba the White Lion. So that's some of what's happening. Um, yeah, and the other thing is, too, I'm going to be on Mike White's The Projection Booth podcast. We're recording tomorrow when we're going to talk about more American graffiti which isn't that we're going to talk about American Graffiti a lot, but we're going to be talking about the sequel to American Graffiti, more American Graffiti, and waffling on about that. Mike's really nice because he arranges the time for the recording of the podcast, which is at a time which is really convenient for me, but really inconvenient for people, the other guests, and himself uh, who are in America. 
which is really sweet of him, and it's really a nice touch. I'm a little more flexible with time than a lot of other people are, but nonetheless, Mike has decided that he's going to do it that way, so thanks for that, Mike. The other things I'm doing, I did a two-piece YouTube video on 10 Australian movies you must see. I broke it down into two lots of five because the running time was getting a little bit long, and the production process of putting all the clips together is not an insignificant task. So breaking it down into two weeks was much better for me than breaking it down into one week. And I I kind of enjoyed doing that. Some of the movies you'll know about from listening to this podcast, one or two you may not. And if you haven't subscribed to the YouTube channel, you really should. The link will be in the show notes for this podcast. And I could always use a few extra bums on seats. I'm now working on another YouTube video over this weekend, apart from doing the thing with Mike and a bunch of other stuff I'm doing which is going to be about the 1963 television series of Astro Boy. So I'm doing a little bit of that and comparing it to the way we see children's television in the 21st century compared to how this one came out in 1963, some of the plot lines and tropes that were a little bit interesting at the time but problematic for the 21st century. So there's going to be a bit of that going on because I want to keep the um, YouTube channel a bit varied. I don't want to get known as the one thing guy. So I'm doing a bit of movies, a bit of television, a bit of other stuff as well, just to keep myself happy with it and to keep it a little bit fresh. It's all going to be more or less media related, but I'm kind of expanding the format a little bit within the general format of the channel. So what have I been watching? Um, I watched one and a half seasons. I watched half a season of this, but I watched the other season and a half of The Orville, the um, Seth MacFarlane homage to classic Star Trek and to be honest with you the second season does kick ass it really stops just being about dick jokes and silliness and pastiches of Star Trek and starts getting a bit of agency of its own uh, deepening the world in which uh, the series is set and giving us some episodes which are quite dark philosophical and do what old school Star Trek did best which was looking at ideas through the lens of a futuristic, semi-utopian society. And that's something that Star Trek Disco, for all of its virtues, hasn't really kept up doing. And so the Orville is the kind of backup guy who still does a really good job of it. And uh, there is a season three going to come out in 2020, and I'm going to watch it. I think it's uh, worth consideration. I think that after that first year, which was a little bit hit and miss... It's really hit its stride in the second season. And there are some plot twists and character twists for some of the established characters, which make for really interesting and not shallow philosophical discussions. And that's a bit of a surprise, but it works um, all strength to them for that. I think that they've listened to the audience. They've also looked at what they were doing. And they've changed it, which was kind of cool. By the way, I am following the Richard Rule, which says I have to start talking about the movies 15 minutes into the podcast. What else have I watched? Uh, da, da, da. For the ABC gig, I re-watched Chef, the movie starring John Favreau, written by John Favreau, about a chef who, after a social media faux pas, reinvents himself using a food truck and takes his son and his sidekick, played by John Leguizamo, across the country cooking really nice Cuban sandwiches for people all the way across America. It's one of those kind of low-key, nothing-at-stake kind of movies, but it's a feel-good movie, and it's a foodie movie, and after it, you're going to want to make a grilled cheese sandwich. It really is a lot of fun. The way I described it on ABC Radio was, it's set in a universe where Iron Man is just a millionaire and Black Widow works in a restaurant because Scarlett Johansson and Robert Downey Jr. have small roles in the movie along with a bunch of other people. Oliver Platt's very good in the movie. Sofia Vergara is the ex-wife. It really, um, yeah, it's, it's if you haven't seen Chef, you really should. And there's also a TV series on Netflix called The Chef Show, where John Favreau goes around and cooks with various chefs around America, which is very much in the same vein and is associated with the movie he did. It was a Netflix movie. But if you haven't checked out Chef, you really should. It's one of those kind of movies that you like. I also saw a Jackie Chan movie from about 10 years ago that slipped under my radar called Shinjuku Incident. It's about illegal Chinese refugees 
working in and around Shinjuku in Tokyo, forming a crime gang and getting involved with the Yakuza. Now, this is very atypical for a Jackie Chan movie. He doesn't have supernatural kung fu abilities or wuxia abilities. He's um, a kind of you know, intelligent, focused guy who's travelled across because his fiance was over there and he'd lost contact with her. He reconnects with her and finds she's married with a child and he forms a crime gang. Um, it's supposed to be based on some real events in the 1980s in the Shinjuku area. And because I know Shinjuku fairly well because of the April thing, where we stayed there for um, roughly 10 days, it was kind of nice just seeing how it was filmed. And it's it's not a bad movie. It's, it's not fantastically terrific. But it does show the start of Jackie Chan moving in a different direction as he ages. Um, you should check it out. It's on Netflix. And it was um, just a little bit of a kind of hidden gem that I found while I was looking for something to do in the wee small hours of the morning. So anyway, there's something else happening um, in the media I was just made aware of while I was browsing after a little bit of a toilet break there. The next Edgar Wright movie coming out is named after a song by Dave D. Dozy, Beaky, Mick and Titch. It's going to be called Last Night in Soho. And just because you people are wonderful, I'm going to play that particular song by Dave D. Dozy, Beaky, Mick and Titch at the end of this podcast. So you've got to get through. No scrubbing through the get to get to the end of it. Wait it out. Have some patience. I'll try to give you some good stuff between now and then. And then you can enjoy being ahead of the curve with other cinema files so that you're aware of the origin of Edgar Wright's next opus. I wasn't a big fan of Baby Driver, mostly because it had Kevin Spacey in it, and I saw it after Kevin Spacey became what Kevin Spacey is now in the public eye, and so I couldn't really enjoy it that much. Never did particularly like Scott Pilgrim because I wasn't of the age to really engage with it the way some other people could. I appreciated the visual invention of it and the fun, but any kind of movie that stars Michael Cera is way beyond the starting gate for me. I've seen it a couple of times, it's okay, but it's not really fantastic. But I've got hopes for this one because that is what being a film buff is, particularly if you're looking at new films. You hope the next one's going to be great. You never hope the next one's going to be a piece of shit. Anyway, on that note, I'm going to go well before the Richard Limit and play the Alfred Hitchcock trailer for Frenzy, including a lot of Hitchcock stuff and a lot of the music by Ron Goodwin. Originally, it was going to have a score by Henry Mancini, which he did a score for the movie. But Hitchcock rejected it because it was a little too Bernard Herrmann. And so we got Ron Goodwin, the British composer, who was probably a lot cheaper than Hank Mancini was at this stage, to do the soundtrack for him. So here it is, the trailer for Frenzy. Then I'm going to start talking about the movie itself. I dare say you are wondering why I am floating around London like this. I am on the famous Thames River, investigating a murder. Rivers can be very sinister places. And in my new film, Frenzy, this river, you may say, was the scene of a very horrible murder. It's a woman! Another necktie murder. Of course, one can never be sure where danger lurks. They tell me a dreadful crime was committed right in this building. My investigation next led me to this innocent alley, of which there are hundreds in London. But I don't think we should stay long. Something unpleasant is about to happen. Another horrible murder. 
This is the famous London wholesale fruit and vegetable market, Covent Garden. Here you may buy the fruits of evil and the horrors of vegetables. I've heard of a leg of lamb, a leg of chicken, but never a leg of potatoes. How do you like my tie? How do you like it? My God. The tie. Friends is a 1972 movie directed by Alfred Hitchcock. It's actually based on a novel called Goodbye Piccadilly, Farewell Leicester Square by Arthur Laburne. The movie stars John Finch, who was also in Polanski's Macbeth and Last Man on Earth, where he played Jerry Cornelius. Alec McCowan, Barry Foster, Billy Whitelaw, Anna Massey, Barbara Lee Hunt, we even get Bernard Cribbins, and Vivian Merchants in it. In a very funny character role. Uh, I'll read this from Wikipedia just to keep it simple. The plot centres on a serial killer in contemporary London and the ex-RAF serviceman he implicates. In a very early scene, there is dialogue that mentions two actual London serial murders, the Christie murders and the Jack the Ripper murders. The police chase and capture the wrong man. And the real murderer seems, at first, to be on the verge of getting away. This was the last movie that Hitchcock made in the UK. And he hadn't made one prior to this one in 1972, since 1939, so since before the Second World War which is why he starts the film with that long tracking shot down the Thames and under the Tower Bridge before we get to the scene where a whole bunch of people are listening to a politician speak on the Thames Embankment and then suddenly their attention is drawn away by a dead woman naked floating down the river with a tie around her neck. Pity the actress who had to do that because the river wasn't the cleanest in 1972. Plus, it was probably very cold. And as that scene suggests, this is the only Hitchcock movie with significant female nudity in it, but I'll talk more about that in a minute. This is also where we get the obligatory Hitchcock cameo, him standing in the crowd of people. Then we see one of the two antagonists, Dick Blaney, played by John Finch, who's working in a pub. He comes downstairs, makes himself a drink, and gets caught by the publican, played by Bernard Cribbins, who has been in Doctor Who, and who normally plays comedy roles, but in this one he's not. Uh, the two have an argument about whether Dick's going to pay for the drink, which he says he normally does. And his girlfriend, Babs Milligan, played by Anna Massey, comes down, gets involved with the argument. And Dick quits and throws the money at his boss and storms out. He has a problem with impulse control. He's an ex-RAF officer who's fallen on hard times and is working in a bar. As he's walking through Covent Garden, he meets a friend of his, a guy called Bob Rusk, played by Barry Foster. And Bob you know, offers to lend him a little bit of money because he looks like he's down on his heels. And he's, he runs a very successful uh, fruit and vegetable business at Covent Garden Market. He's friendly with everybody. He's a cheerful Cockney kind of guy. Um, you know, reasonable Cockney accent little bit lower in class than Dick is because you don't get to be an Air Force officer unless you have a certain social status in England in the 1960s, 1970s. And they kind of meet up. He gives him some grapes. They have a bit of a chat. And Bob gives him a tip on the horses, which turns out to be a successful tip on the horses. But unfortunately, Dick doesn't have enough money to bet on the horse. He goes and visits his ex-wife, who runs a matrimonial agency, oddly enough, and he gets a little bit cynical about that too, and he's speaking with the secretary at the um, matrimonial agency, played by Jean Marsh. His wife, Brenda, played by Barbara Lee Hunt, 
seems to still have feelings for him. Uh, he's a bitter and cynical about things, but she kind of understands his bitterness and his cynicism. And she takes him out to dinner where he misbehaves. They spend the night together. And there's a kind of nice rapport between the actors that really does f- feel lived in, that they do a good job of selling the relationship. Uh, then we find out who the actual murderer is. And I'm going to do a spoiler here. It's Bob. Bob comes to the matrimonial agency under um, a false name. And he is quite explicit in the fact that what he's looking for is women who are sexually masochistic. And Brenda talks to him about that and how they don't want him as a customer anymore and that his needs need to be serviced elsewhere. And he attacks, rapes and kills her in a very graphic scene for the time. And it's still very confronting, the uh, the fear and the anger and the rage that this guy has and the kink um barry foster and barbara lee hunt sell this incredibly well there is some nudity in it with a body double all the nudity in this one has a body double except for a couple of minor dead characters and it really is nasty and brutal and confronting to this day it um it can be seen by some people, and I totally understand this as prurient, and I did feel uncomfortable watching it. I think that our ability to view graphic rape and murder scenes of a sexual nature has changed over the years. There's a big controversy at the moment, for instance, with Jennifer Kent's new movie, The Mockingbird, which has the Mockingbird, sorry, which has a whole bunch of um, graphic and uncomfortable rape in it. I haven't seen the movie myself, but I've got some friends who have, and they say that it is very confronting. Uh, This is the director who did The Babadook, and the discussion is, should this kind of movie be made? Uh, There have been a number of people who've walked out of sessions of this film, The Mockingbird I'm talking about, but but I think it's a discussion we need to keep having, and we can kind of gauge it individually, and it depends on the purpose to which the scene is put. And I think in Frenzy, There's a validity to it. We need to understand exactly who Bob is and what Bob is. And there's a particular aspect to his kink involving a tie pin, which we need for a scene later in the movie. So it's very confronting, and I don't doubt that if the movie were to be made now, it would have been played very differently, but we'll accept that it's part of its time. There's also a scene earlier which is very telling with a couple of barristers chatting about the murders in a pub and their attitudes are really disgusting they talk about how he rapes the women they talk about how the guy rapes the women first and they make a rape joke in there um, which again shows that kind of male privilege and that inability for lawmakers to truly understand the nature of rape having this scene in there is a good indication not particularly the one that Hitchcock would have wanted, but a good indication that the legal industry doesn't handle this kind of assault very well, even back in those days and up until the present day. Anyway, Dick turns up at the agency a little bit later and he knocks on the door, but the door's locked. So he walks away and he is seen by the secretary walking out of the building where the agency is. Therefore, he becomes a suspect. Then, to change the tone, we meet the cop who's going to be investigating the murders, Chief Inspector Tim Oxford, played by Alec McCowan. And he's a lot of fun. He's sitting at his desk eating a full English breakfast and complaining to his assistant that his wife will only cook French grub at home. She's on a French cooking kick. And that then becomes a running joke throughout the movie, just to kind of even the tone a little bit, where... Uh, Tim and his wife, who doesn't get a name, she's played by Vivian Merchant and does a fantastic job with this, talk about the murders and he kind of bounces ideas off her and gets her feedback, which is kind of cute, while she serves up some really disgustingly badly cooked French cuisine. Soup de poisson, which is fish soup, which looks horrible and grey and claggy. Um, They do quail with grapes and a few other bits and pieces. There really is a disgusting thing, but there's a lovely relationship between the two. It really kind of works. 
and it's a little bit of fun there. And I would watch a TV series of these two solving crimes because it really gives um, a, a kind of humorous tone and one which is away from the rapey, ugly aspects of the movie, which I'm kind of appreciative for because there are some really ugly things that happen in this one. Finding out he's a suspect, Dick goes on the run and is hiding out with a couple of friends, played by Clive Swift and Billy Whitelaw, John and Hetty Porter, and they kind of offer him a way to escape. People can go to France without showing passports, and they get the idea that um, Dick and Babs can go over there and tend bar for a British pub that Johnny and Hetty own in Paris. Then Babs gets killed by Rusk, and we see that in a very nice shot where he walks her into his apartment and says a line that he said to his previous victim, Brenda, and the door shuts, and we get this tracking shot down a couple of flights of stairs and out into Covent Garden Market, which is done really nicely because the first three quarters of the shot is done in studio, and then they have a guy walk in front of the screen and they do a wipe and pull out on Covent Garden Market in a second shot, filmed actually on the market. A really nice bit of late Hitchcock direction. And the good thing there is we know that Babs is being killed, but we don't need to see it because of the explicit and quite horrible murder of Brenda earlier, which is shown in a lot of detail. All we need to know is that Babs is the next victim. And then that brings us into one of the most intriguing um, series of scenes in this movie which is at night time Bob brings a sack of potatoes out of his apartment building and we know that Babs's body is in this enormous sack with the potatoes he's just heard from a friend earlier that afternoon that a whole bunch of the potatoes he was trying to sell at the market aren't being sold but are being driven up north in a lorry to have them dug into um, a paddock up in the north country somewhere, obviously to grow new potatoes. And so Bob sees that as a way of getting rid of the body. So he sneakily gets to the truck, loads the bag of spuds with Babs in it onto the truck and goes off. And then he discovers something. The tie pin that he uses to kind of differentiate between murderous Bob and normal Bob is missing. And he can't figure out where it is. And then he realises that Babs clutched at it and that it's somewhere on or in her body. And so he's got to sneak back to the truck to try to open this bag of potatoes, drag the naked body of Babs out and find where this tie pin is because it will give him away. And so we get a long sequence of Barry Foster's character in the truck, the truck, uh, the tailgate gets pushed up in the truck by the truck driver. He doesn't see him and starts driving away with Bob on the truck. And Bob has to then try to get the type in and not be found out. So there's a long sequence there, a lot of suspense and a lot of problems and even a little bit of humour there, which shows the things that Bob's got to go through to get this type in back. And the thing here is what Hitchcock is doing is getting us to be sympathetic with the murderer which kind of emotionally invested in bob finding this type in because of the way hitchcock builds up the suspense even though he's a repugnant character and a monster and a rapist and a murderer hitchcock makes us complicit in bob's view of the narrative which is masterful stuff eventually dick gets arrested for the murder because his friend's even though they now know him to be innocent because there's been another murder after they've been hiding him in their apartment, they decide they can't help him escape because they would then be accomplices in his escape. So he gets caught by the coppers, tried, convicted and put in prison, but then he has um, an accident in prison, falling down a metal staircase, has to go to hospital and arranges an escape to try to exonerate himself. I won't go any further than that, but the resolution's kind of satisfying in a low-key way. And I, I like Family Plot, which is Hitchcock's last movie, but I don't like it as much as I like Frenzy because it's got a supernatural aspect to it and I don't like the characters, particularly in Family Plot. But um, Frenzy does show the kind of, for me, the last hurrah 
of Hitchcock as a director where he does um, go to some grim and sadistic places, but then we always knew he was grim and sadistic and particularly towards blonde women. But the movie really works at a lot of levels. He, he films London really well. It's very clear that he has a love of it. His father actually had a bunch of fruit shops, and he, so part of Hitchcock's childhood was spent around Covent Garden Market. So he's got a, an instinctive love and nostalgic love for that area of London. He's got a nostalgic love for old-school London pubs and places like that and parks and all those kind of things that we remember with fondness from our childhoods. Though my memories of pubs are a little less rosy than um, Hitchcock's may have been. But, yeah, it's, it's an interesting film. The ensemble works really well. Uh, you know, a good dramatic turn by Bernard Cribben. Um, Billy Whitelaw, even though she doesn't get much of a large role, she is really good in this because you know exactly who the character is pretty quickly. You know how she thinks the fact that she doesn't like Dick at all, even though her husband Clive does, and the fact that she's reluctant to help him. And she's kind of a hard and somewhat cynical human being. Anna Massey is very good as um, Babs, the girlfriend. Uh, there is a nude scene using a body double of her character. And Anna Massey thought she was going to be doing the nude scene, but it turns out the body double was going to be doing it. And Hitchcock did one of his cute observational bits in that because it's a cold morning and the naked woman gets out of bed and puts on her socks before she goes to the bathroom because it's so cold. So it's just one of those little observational things. We do get to see breasts and a bit of pubic hair. The only pubic hair that appears in a Hitchcock film, by the way. And um, it's a kind of superfluous scene, but I think Hitchcock was reveling in the freedom of um, from certain kinds of censorship. And while the scene is kind of voyeuristic and a little bit unnecessary, it's not particularly sexualized. It's a woman doing everyday things, going to the bathroom after pulling on a pair of warm woolly socks because it's cold in the morning. So it's a kind of observed thing. Totally superfluous scene, but we'll give him that one in his whole career. It was a nice watch for me. I, I did enjoy it. I, um, the advertising, the trailer for it is all about Hitchcock and not all about the story particularly, but then he was always a self-promoter in his career in the 50s, 60s and 70s. But um, yeah, Frenzy, I think, is the last great Hitchcock film. And I'm kind of glad that I got it. I actually picked it up at one of my favourite places in Sydney, which is much smaller now than it used to be, and that's Gould's Bookshop. Uh, I negotiated with uh, Mrs Gould for it because she suggested five bucks each for that and a copy of Rope on DVD. And I went, yeah, okay. It was one of those things where the price wasn't certain. It's a second-hand place and there's a tonne of um, stock in a very small shop and probably a lot more in a warehouse somewhere. So we kind of negotiated the price of it. And that was a nice little sweet moment and reminds me fondly of earlier days and and a different kind of capitalism where, is this this amount okay? Yeah, that's fine. Rather than a corporatized, spreadsheeted kind of approach. It was, it was a sweet moment for me, and it makes me like the movie just that little bit more because of the way in which it was purchased. It's like certain books that you appreciate because you got them cheaply and you had a chat with the person you bought it from. We form emotional attachments to these objects that represent works of art. And, um, yeah, I'm kind of glad it does. I think that making that emotional connection with the means by which you get a piece of art, and, yeah, cinema is art, is one of those human things that we do which we don't get from just flicking through a menu on a streaming service even though that's incredibly convenient and easy to do and you don't have to move off your couch but anyway i'm going to take a break now and when i get back i'm going to talk about cleo from five to seven by Agnes Varda. uh it's a good movie it's a feminist movie it's a beautiful movie and it is sad delightful and interesting in so many different ways yeah, I said earlier that um, the friend of Dick in Frenzy was Clive. The actor's actually Clive Swift. The character's name is Johnny. Frenzy! 
That, of course, was Screaming Jay Hawkins with Frenzy, which seemed apt to play. Uh, so let's move on to Anya's Vada's 1962 movie, Cleo, from 5 to 7, which is really interesting um, in a lot of ways. I knew that she was married to Jacques Demy, and Jacques Demy is one of my favourite directors, but I hadn't seen any of Anya's Vada's movies before, which is, I know, remiss of me. But I put some of the Patreon money together and got a South Korean cut of the Criterion edition of Cleo from 5 to 7, which doesn't have any of the Criterion edition extras, but I'm willing to um, forgo that for an enormous cost saving. As far as I know, it's a legit South Korean um, version of it, but whether it is or not, it's still a movie that I'm recommending because I really did enjoy the fuck out of it. The movie takes place over two hours between 5 and 7 p.m., in the life of a young woman called Cleo, whose real name is Flores. And she's a um, slightly popular pop singer. She's had three singles out. She's um, well-known and, and a bit of a celebrity, mostly for being a celebrity. And the two hours are playing out because Cleo is waiting until she can go and see a doctor for the test results on some tests she's having done to find out whether she has cancer. Now, you've got to remember this is 1962. Cancer wasn't particularly fixable in 1962 in any of its manifestations. So Cleo is young and quite beautiful and has celebrity and friends, is facing an existential crisis. She has a lover, Jose, played by Jose Luis de Villalonga, uh, and he kind of doesn't take her concerns seriously. He comes and meets her just to give her a kiss because he's so busy he can't stay for very long. And he dismisses her when she says she feels unwell because she's just trying to get attention. That's, that's what he believes. He's an asshole, basically. The movie's divided up into chapters depending on how much time Cleo is spending with each of the people uh, or with all by herself. So we get these kind of slices of time as she fills those two hours until she gets the diagnosis. It starts out in the one colour piece during the movie, which is a tarot card reading with a fortune teller who tells her that there's a widow in her life who is completely devoted to her, but also a terrible influence, who is her maid, Angele. The fortune teller also tells her that Cleo has recently met a generous young man, and that's, of course, Jose, her lover. The fortune teller also tells her she's going to meet a talkative young man, which she does. There's a bit of foreshadowing here, though we quite don't quite believe it because fortune telling is bullshit, but it does pan out true in the world of the movie. So Cleo goes out um, after she's had a, a very negative reading from the fortune teller. And after she leaves, she tells herself that as long as she's beautiful, she's alive. She's dressed very fashionably and she has her hair curly. Um, it turns out that it's a wig, but it's a very fashionable 1962 wig. She um, cries in a cafe, even though the people around her ignore her um she she and angela go shopping for a hat um and cleo is focused on black fur hats even though it's unseasonable to wear black fur hats 
her negativity is being reflected in her choice of hat. She's scared and she's depressed, but nobody really takes that seriously in her life because she's young, she's beautiful, she has a, a burgeoning career as a, as a singer, and because she seems to have everything, those concerns and, and that kind of depression isn't really addressed by anybody around her. She goes home, she does some exercise on a bar strung above a doorway. Pianist, composer and her lyricist, the composer and the pianist, are played by Michel Legrand. His name's Bob in the movie. And he plays her a few little bits of music and a few songs. And then we see and hear Cleo sing one of Bob's songs. And it becomes something totally different. At first, they're playing it light, and um, Bob and the composer and the lyricist are trying to cheer her up. But then he starts singing one of her songs, and we get a full orchestral version of it with Michel Legrand's wonderful piano playing there. And the song kind of foreshadows some of the songs we get in slightly later works. Jacques Demy's The Umbrellas of Cherbourg and The Young Girls of Rochefort, which are two of my favourite movies. So it's very much in that, and we get this burst of emotion from her, which, through the song, she expresses how she feels. It's a fantastically beautiful scene. It builds organically, and it allows us to, maybe for the first time in the movie, see that Cleo isn't just a pretty thing with a problem. She's uh, uh, an adult woman. She has feelings. She knows how to express her feelings, and she has genuine fears and she doesn't know really how to deal with them. In fact, the song was a hit for Corinne Marchand, who plays Cleo, in 1962, and I found it on YouTube just now. So I'm going to play the song. Uh, even if you don't understand French, you're going to definitely get the mood here. And it is um, a wonderful piece of filmmaking, and cu it coming into a movie which I didn't think was going to have any music in it surprised me. that and that unexpectedness really kind of <laughs> made me happy while I was watching this thing. Uh, there's a few conversations that Cleo has as well. There's one with a female cab driver where they talk about her work and then Cleo meets up with a girlfriend of hers who does, uh, she's a life model for a bunch of artists and she's first seen nude and then she dresses and goes out with Cleo and she's got her boyfriend's car and she's got to pick up some films for him because he runs a cinema. 
Where they're showing Elmer Gantry, among other things. Uh, there's a few different movie posters around this movie. There's one for Unchi and Andalou. Uh, if you look around, you'll see a few different movie posters, and it's kind of cool where Vada is aiming the camera at them. When they get to the cinema, they go up to the projection booth where Dorothy, the nude model's boyfriend, is, and he shows them a short film which is made especially for this movie. And it's kind of cute. Uh, there's Jean-Luc Godard turns up in it, and a Karuna, Eddie Constantine, and Jean-Claude Briali as characters in a silent movie that um, the guy called Raoul shows Cleo and Dorothy. And it's a silent film type of thing. Uh, it shows about seeing the negatives and the positives of life. It's a little kind of morality play about that on the banks of the Seine. And it's kind of um, whimsical and funny and touching as well. There are all these different things that Cleo goes through in these two hours that show her interesting things about life. I mean, the, in, the conversation she has with the female cab driver, um, having the chat with Dorothy about how she feels being a nude model and how it doesn't worry her to show off her body. But Cleo is um, a bit prudish and shy. Cleo, like her maid, uh, Angela, is superstitious, but Dorothy isn't. Uh, the, there are all these kind of ideas being floated around and opposing worldviews entering a discussion with each other. Cleo drops, drops Dorothy off at her apartment and then has the cab driver take her to a park where she walks through the park and is kind of dragging her heels a little bit. Tom's passing. She's got to go and see the doctor at the hospital to get her diagnosis and to see what's happening with that. And in the park near a waterfall, she meets Antoine, a soldier who's on leave from the Algerian War. Now, the Algerian War was going on in 1962 and there's a background of it throughout the movie. There are um, news reports about it, various characters are discussing it. There's an art student protest against the Algerian conflict as well. There are all these, it's been a theme in the background and it finally comes to a boil when she meets Antoine. And Antoine's um, a very optimistic character. He's very talkative. He's the talkative man of whom the tarot card spoke at the start of the movie. He's cheerful. He's got a positive worldview. And he challenges Cleo and helps her realise that she's been very self-centred and very selfish. And he asks her to accompany him to the train station because he's going back on duty. And he promises to take her to the hospital first to get her test results. And they talk and they have a rapport and they kind of like each other a lot. And they get to the hospital and the doctor's not there. Now, I'm not going to spoil the rest of the movie for you. What I am going to do is tell you what I think the movie's about. And there's been a lot of discussion about this because Anya Zvada is a very well-directed, uh, well-respected director. Having trouble with my words today. Uh, there are a whole bunch of themes there. Um, I'm just reading off Wikipedia to get a rough idea, but I'll then focus in on what I think. There's the themes of existentialism, uh, mortality, despair, and what a meaningful life is. And getting off that page now, there's a lot of stuff about the way men view and treat women. The composers see her as an instrument for their creativity. Her boyfriend sees her as decorative and pretty and sexy. There's a lot of social commentary here, particularly when she's wandering through cafes and she's uh, walking down the street and people are looking at her because she's a very beautiful, tall, attractive woman. And yet inside her is such turmoil and doubt and uncertainty and fear for the future that the facade isn't her. And one of the things that this movie does make really clear is that appearances are always deceptive. And there's a shrugging off of that selfishness and that prettiness where Cleo takes off her wig and her natural hair is quite attractive, but it's a little more freeform. It's not as structured and formalised as the wig is with the precise chignon and the curls in it. Her own hair, we, it's, the makeup also is reduced as time goes on. I don't know how, maybe it's just a choice they made. But we see her not as decorative, but as a woman walking through a city. And as a woman who's... The more we know about Cleo, the more we know about how she thinks. And there is some internal monologue for a couple of different characters that goes on in order to illustrate this. The less her appearance matters. We get invested in who she is, what the diagnosis is going to be, 
and how she's going to manage it when it inevitably occurs. As an audience, we get invested in this seed of a relationship that's starting between Cleo and Antoine and the rapport they have and the way he's very talkative on this omnibus they get on. It's a reloading bus. It's a very unusual old school French one where they ride through the city towards a hospital and a lot of the things that Antoine's talking about are little trivial things, inconsequential things, little things observed about the streets as they go past them. It's not really um, a formal kind of conversation, but it's a getting-to-know-you conversation that shows us who he is and her responses, which are a little bit less verbose than his because obviously she's got a lot on her mind. But she kind of eventually finds that his chattiness and his worldview is helping her with the fear and the uncertainty and the doubt and the sheer terror that she feels inside. And, you know, what is she going to do if there's a diagnosis? She finally realizes that even if it is just the seed of a relationship there, there's somebody there who cares enough to go to the hospital with her and be there when she gets the diagnosis. Even if essentially he's a stranger who's going to leave that night and be away for several months. And there's also the wonderful use of Paris as one of the characters in the movie. The city through which Cleo is travelling for these two hours is definitely part of the city. Some of the shots are almost documentary in style and we see how people are dressed. They don't use a lot of actors. There's just a lot of people on the street who react to Cleo in various ways. There are some actors in some of the cafe scenes and in um, when she's off the streets. But we see a lot of um, really just how the traffic flowed in the streets. I'm surprised there weren't car accidents. And Paris itself is kind of not just a background, but is an important part of this journey that um, Claire was on, where she starts out bland and beautiful and kind of ends up being, in our minds, a fully formed woman who's on this journey to find out who she is and what her future will be and to become a less self-involved person while she's undergoing this crisis. It really is an extraordinary piece of cinema and I'm now going to have to deep dive Agnes Varda's work because there's stuff here that is magical in the best sense of the word. None of this movie, if you see it for the first time, is predictable. It surprises and concerns and delights us by doing things in ways we haven't seen before. And that's kind of cool. There's a bit where the composer and the lyricist are with Cleo and there's all singing a song and the camera rocks in tune to the song in a really delightful way. And it's at that point in the movie where we start actually seeing who this woman is. And that she's not just the pretty decorative woman going shopping and believing silly superstitions and all of this kind of thing. It's where we actually start to see Florence, the woman who is known as Cleo. And I love that. It really is a movie that's like her husband's work, like The Umbrellas of Cherbourg and The Young Girls of Rochefort. And like some, but not all, of the French New Wave movies, in the middle of which Agnes Varda was, it is life-affirming in a way that's kind of informed by the other French New Wave movies of the time, but is not reliant on it because it's coming from a woman's viewpoint with a female director and writer and telling the story her way. It really is an extraordinary piece of cinema. If you haven't seen it, you really should. As I said, there is a criterion edition of it and rightly so it, it is an important bit of french cinema for me at least where i spend a lot of my time watching movies that are all about spectacle and grandeur and really large stories with the fate of the world at stake and beautiful special effects in brilliant colors and breathtaking action sequences this movie takes me back a little bit to where i should be yeah, I mean, all of those movies are great. The great big spectacular movies are fun and we enjoy them enormously. But now and then you've got to kind of step back and see a piece of cinema 
that remind you what storytelling is when it's not just about the pretty lights and movement. When it's a movie maker showing you how they see the world and not just telling a story from a comic book. It's one of the best movies I've seen this year, hands down, and I'm very happy that I saw it. So it's time to knock, knock, knock that naughty clock that says it's time to go. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you to all of the Patreon supporters who let me buy this movie, including Rich Chamberlain, who is still not on the credits because I've been slack and actually I've been quite busy doing a lot of the creative stuff. I'm way behind on my YouTube channel and other things that I'm committed to doing weekly because I'm fucking insane. But uh, thank you, Rich, and thank you all the other Patreon subscribers, which you really should be as well. If you listen this far, pony up a couple of bucks a month. Yes, I'm giving you the hard sell. Um, anyway, thanks for listening. I'll be back with a Martian Driving podcast in a week and another Paleo Cinema podcast in two weeks. I've got to go off now and finish the YouTube video about the 1963 Astro Boy series because I committed to doing that. As I promised you, there's going to be a Dave D. Dozy, Beaky Mick and Titch song after the credits. In the meantime, look after yourselves. Watch some good movies. Watch some bad movies. Take care. Stay out of the heat if you're in the north. Stay warm if you're down here because it's really nasty. And if you do get the opportunity, really punch a Nazi for me, but just don't give him your right name. I'll be back talking at you real soon. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast done in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom the Focus Puller, Sarah the Special Effects Technician, Ian the Caterer, Grant the Technicolor Consultant, Claire the Script Doctor, Gary the Prop Master, Morris the Musical Director, Jan the Dialect Coach, Arm and Our Key Grip, Matt the Rattlesnake Wrangler, Elaine our Scientific Advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, uh, Steve Sullivan, our Director of Monster Effects, Dylan, our Goat Wrangler, Eric, our Set Security Lead, Richard H., our Set Photographer, Mark D., our Extra, and David L., our Extra, Kerry H., who is the Accountant, and our newest supporter, Gary J., who is a CG effects technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. Yourself a real cute dog, you're living life in style. But boy, don't get.
above your station If you don't want aggravation Got a little job for you This is what you gotta do Don't cry my 